You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we got a good friend of the ministry back here, uh, one of my favorites to have on the show. A guy who was back nice enough right before to one of my ebooks, that uh, I co-wrote in fact, and that's uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg. And he's written this uh, tiny, minuscule little book called... Uh, <laughs> The Historical Reliability of the New Testament. I mean, I, I'm serious, guys. This thing, it, it, it's small. I mean, it's only like nearly 800 pages worth of information. <laughs> you can read it in a night. Uh, yeah, he's uh, here to talk to us about it. He is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. And uh, Dr. Blomberg, it's great to have you back here again. It's good to be back. Thank you for the invitation. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, could you tell us a bit, a bit about uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, uh, it emerged directly out of my own conversion as a teenager when uh, I became a Christian and talked to other people about what had happened to me and uh, my love for Jesus and uh, the Bible. Um, I discovered that people had lots of questions, and there were a lot of good resources available that uh, um, provided good answers. But one of the uh, gaps back in the 1970s, uh, there was a, a famous uh, bit of C.S. Lewis that Josh McDowell had alliterated and said, uh, when it comes to Jesus, there's a, a trilemma, uh, taking the idea of a dilemma and, and making it uh, three parts. And he, uh, he said, uh, either Jesus is uh, a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Either he uh, knew what he was saying was false, uh, in which case he was a liar, or he didn't know what he was saying was false, in which case he was a lunatic, or he knew that what he was saying was true, and therefore he was the Lord of the universe. And what I wasn't prepared for was people responding and saying, well, modern scholars have determined that a large percentage of what exists in the Gospels, attributed to what Jesus said and did, uh, isn't historical at all. So they might as well have come up with a fourth L and said uh, it's a legend. And nothing in uh, mere Christianity or evidence that demands a verdict back in those days uh, prepared me to respond to that. And so um, 
that that sent me off on a quest uh, through my college years and uh, eventually deciding to go to seminary and then to uh, to doctoral study. Um, at first, to answer the more limited question of uh, the reliability of the Gospels, since that's where you find uh, the supposedly historical information about Jesus. Of course, you've got a much bigger uh, collection of books than just the four Gospels, and so I have taught widely from all parts of the New Testament throughout my career, and uh, when I was invited to do this this larger work, I thought this would be a, a good way um, it will probably be the last new book that I'll write on this topic. If if the Lord gives me a number of years, I may create new editions of things. But uh, um, to try to take just about every major question that uh, has been raised uh, by serious, thoughtful uh, thinkers um, about trustworthiness of a certain part uh, of the New Testament and uh, and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's going to be no way we can cover everything in this book. Yes, it, it, it's... Thank goodness. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's starting on page one, the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> but th- this one really is a treat to go through. And in fact, surprisingly, I think I could say it's reader-friendly entirely. That uh, you don't have to be a scholar of the Bible to understand what's being said. That was my goal. Well, let's start with the first section here where you talk about the synoptic Gospels and how they came together and such. First off, in case some people in my audience might not know, what are the synoptics exactly and why are they called synoptics? Sure. Uh, That's a term that refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the first three of the four New Testament Gospels. Uh, And they've come to be called that simply because... uh, They are more similar than different, and so you can uh, put their texts in in parallel columns uh, and create uh, a book that's called a a synopsis. Uh, The word synopsis, etymologically in English, just comes from uh, two words that mean uh, to look together at something, uh, a together look. And so uh, on more pages than not of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there will be at least one of the other uh, two of those Gospels that will have uh, a parallel account of the same uh, episode from the life of Jesus. And uh, on rare occasions, they will be almost word-for-word identical, but more normally, uh, they're retold with uh, different details uh, included or excluded. Um, abbreviated or elaborated, and uh, when one compares and contrasts the way the different uh, um, gospel writers tell those stories, one can learn a lot about uh, what each of them was most interested in. Um, You can learn about their uh, historical and and literary styles, but you can also learn about um, the theological themes that uh, they found out of the life of Jesus that they believed were most important um, for the people they were uh, originally writing to. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the questions that comes up always when we talk about the synoptics is the synoptic problem. So what exactly is the synoptic problem? 
yeah, it sounds uh, more uh, mysterious and uh, like something out of Sherlock Holmes than it actually is. Um, it's simply a, a scholarly way of referring to the fact that uh, there is almost certainly some kind of a literary relationship among uh, these three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, because of the places where they are word for word or virtually word for word the same. And so the synoptic problem is simply a, a shorthand way of saying, uh, of addressing the question, um, how are Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, most likely related? Can we identify uh, who wrote first? Um, did uh, the other two borrow from that writer? Um, did the third one borrow from each of the preceding two? Um, were there other sources um, in existence in the first century that uh, they might have drawn on uh, to compose uh, their gospel? And uh, different scholars give different answers, but there are, are certainly uh, answers that are much more common and accepted than others. And that uh, constitutes a synoptic problem. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the main things that comes up when we talk about synoptic gospels in the poem also is a cue, which is a very controversial idea, isn't it? Well, especially if uh, you're into uh, James Bond and you think this has something mm-hmm. to do with uh, <laughs> a uh, mystery uh, character uh, who's involved in spy activity. Wasn't there one uh, in Star Trek it. also? But uh, Q is simply uh, the first letter of uh, the German word quella, which means source. Um, And uh, because the theory originated in the uh, 19th century in Germany, uh, it has it's the letter stuck. And so the Q hypothesis uh, refers to the suggestion that there may have been. a document, a source, or maybe a combination of documents, or um, some written and oral traditions that explain why approximately 235 um, verses in uh, Matthew and Luke are similar enough to each other uh, that it appears to be Jesus saying the same thing. But uh, they're not found in Mark, which is uh, traditionally believed to have been the earliest gospel. And uh, they are almost all teachings of Jesus, not uh, uh, with rare exceptions, not narratives of things he or other people did, but uh, just a a set of uh, Jesus, uh, sometimes parables, more often than not, fairly short teachings, and we know that in the ancient world, uh, in the first century, uh, the centuries immediately before and after it, um, Jews, Greeks, and Romans all like to uh, create a a digest or an epitome of uh, the most important teachings of a a rabbi or a philosopher or a a leading uh, public figure of one kind or another. And so it's it's a reasonable theory, though... uh, it can't be proved uh, that uh, in addition to following Mark at many points, uh, Matthew and Luke also had uh, another written source, uh, shorter source, uh, or collection of sources that they drew on to account for uh, this material that's in common. 
what what makes it controversial is really not anything much of what I've said thus far, um, but the fact that then some scholars go on to erect uh, huge superstructures uh, on top of this hypothesis, imagining that there were one or more uh, Christian communities, perhaps within Israel in the first century, for, for whom Q functioned as their major source of information about Jesus. They didn't know uh, any full-fledged Gospels. Or uh, others will postulate that uh, Q developed in uh, a series of stages, and the earliest stage, which then becomes the, the earliest stage of belief about Jesus, did not have Jesus uh, as anything more than a wise sage. He wasn't predicting the end of the world. He wasn't uh, saying things that uh, led people to think he was claiming to be divine. Uh, that all came at, at a later stage. And um, there are people who have reconstructed uh, what they think Q would have originally looked like, um, first in the Greek and then translated into English. Uh, I still remember, oh, it's been at least 20 years ago now, uh, when I was uh, uh, visiting with a, a business leader here in Littleton in Colorado, and uh, with great excitement, knowing what I, what I did, he said uh, to me, I didn't know that they had found Q. And I said, they haven't. And he says, oh, no, um, I'm in a Reader's Digest book club, and the book of the month I was sent a copy of the book of Q. And I chuckled and I said, right, um, what you were sent was um, an English translation of uh, teachings of Jesus found in Matthew and Luke, arranged in a certain order that uh, some scholars think might have corresponded to the order of Q if such a document actually existed. No, 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 he insisted. He said, it doesn't say anything like that on the book jacket. It tells me this is the lost gospel of Q. And I'm not sure at the end of the conversation if I had ever adequately convinced him that that was a marketing device to uh, try to sell a lot of books, but it was simply a hypothetical reconstruction of a hypothetical document, and nobody had ever found anything. Mm -hmm. was, I know there was one New Testament scholar who had said that all New Testament scholars should put uh, something on me to the fact that Q is a hypothetical document whose exact nature and, and words cannot be known, and say it to <laughs> themselves every day. Does that sound familiar to you? That, that is uh, a nice uh, summary, if I say so myself. Um, but it's not exciting. It, it doesn't make news. It doesn't sell books. So the story doesn't always get told that way. Now, there are, in fact, some people who are also skeptical of Q. Mark Goodacre, probably the leading one of the case against Q. And right. I right. remember even interviewing Richard Balkum, and he has his own doubts about Q. And I have my own doubts about Q. Um, having studied 
years ago with Howard Marshall at University of Aberdeen, who throughout his lifetime was, uh, uh, for many years, some would have called him the premier evangelical New Testament scholar in the world. I suppose uh, today uh, Tom Wright holds that uh, pride of place, but uh, Marshall was uh, uh, strong, uh, strongly convinced of uh, the probability of Q as a as a written source. Um, but he stopped there. He didn't go on to uh, make all kinds of speculations uh, uh, about distinctive theologies and, and communities and stages of development. Um, but uh, whenever I talk about this in class, uh, I usually manage to draw a chuckle by saying, I will never be martyred uh, for a belief in the existence of Q. Uh, if my life depends on denying that I've ever uh, even suggested it might have existed, uh, I will happily jettison that. There are central doctrines to the Christian faith that I hope I would be willing with God's help to die for if I had to, but Q will never be one of them. Now, I, I could keep going with that for synoptics, but I'd rather take all the Gospels together for some other questions. So let's go to the Gospel of John. What okay. makes John so different? Um... What doesn't make John different? Uh, approximately 80% of the contents of the Gospel of John uh, do not have uh, a parallel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that in itself shouldn't cause surprise because with a little bit of rhetorical exaggeration at the end of John's Gospel, the um, one of the last verses itself says, uh, there are many other things that Jesus did, and I suppose the uh, whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written um, uh, if somebody were to try uh, to narrate all of them is the point. Um, but it's not just that uh, John appears to be supplementing Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, the kinds of uh, things that he includes about Jesus uh, and does not include uh, at first glance, uh, are somewhat striking. Uh, there are long, uh, sustained, largely uninterrupted sermons or discourses of Jesus in uh, John that focus uh, not like, say, the Sermon on the Mount on uh, how Christians ought to live, which you find a, a long account of in Matthew 5 to 7, but they are all uh, about Jesus' own claims about himself. Uh, contained within them are uh, the seven uh, I am statements in which Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and the resurrection and the life and uh, the bread of life and the uh, gate uh, for the sheep who come into the fold, and uh, the true vine, um, the light of the world, and, and so forth. And then in maybe the most uh, dramatic example in John eight fifty eight, he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And that isn't bad grammar or a bad translation. It's the fact that he is saying, uh, John puts it in Greek, ego eimi, he probably spoke it in, in Aramaic, uh, the language of God 
revealing himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush when Moses asks for his name and he says, I am that I am. I'm the the eternally existing one. Um, You don't find those uh, claims in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, You have uh, strong uh, and direct links with uh, deity. Uh, The very beginning of John 1, in the beginning was the word. You don't know who this word is until you get several verses in, and then you find out it's Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But he wasn't just divine, he was uh, divinity incarnate, so that by verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he makes statements uh, later during his ministry uh, where he says, I and the Father are one. And uh, it's obvious that he means something more than just uh, united in uh, mind or will or purpose, because uh, some of the Jewish leaders pick up stones. Uh, to uh, stone him because they they understand this as blasphemous. And then you go to uh, the resurrection accounts in John 20 and 21, and and you read things like uh, Thomas uh, when he uh, sees Jesus and uh, cries out, my Lord and my God. Um, On the other hand, uh, there isn't a single parable anywhere in the Gospel of John Uh, There are dramatic miracles, and some of them are actually quite similar to miracles that we find in the synoptics, but there's not a single exorcism, never casts out a demon in the Gospel of John. Uh, So that's just uh, getting our uh, ankles and and legs wet, maybe up to our knees, uh, but uh, we could keep on going quite a ways in in talking about... uh, the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the one hand, and John on the other. Well, let's start talking about all the Gospels as a whole, and some common objections that are raised against them is that one thing, the Gospels are anonymous. I mean, why should we trust these anonymous sources? It's true. Uh, as far as we know, uh, the original manuscripts uh, most likely did not have the titles that we are accustomed to seeing uh, the gospel according to so-and-so. Um, we don't actually know that. Um, it, it seems that it's a, a reasonable inference because um, would it be likely that um, initially um, even to the partial degree that the Gospels are independent of each other. Um, People would have decided on this particular title, uh, Evangelion, Good News Gospel, and determined that the the best way to uh, phrase it would be uh, kata, according to, and then somebody's name. Uh, And would there have been a need for it? is another interesting question. Until you had a collection of the four Gospels that were circulating together, um, and there needed to be a way to distinguish the four. Uh, There have been some scholars, Martin Hengel, uh, probably the most notable one, who argued that uh, 
Mark created the original title, The Gospel According to Mark, and Matthew, Luke, and John followed suit. Um, so it is conceivable that they're not anonymous. But on the assumption that they are, the question you have to ask then is, why would the church at the very latest, by the second century, have chosen these four names? Um, we actually know from all of the apocryphal and uh, Gnostic texts that were written in the second, third, fourth, even fifth centuries, that uh, when Christians or those who gleaned from the Christian tradition took names of uh, people for their, uh, their documents, they tried to pick the most famous and the most respected first-generation Christian people available. And so you find the Gospel of Peter, and you find the Gospel of James, and you find Philip, and Mary, and Bartholomew, and even uh, somebody outside of the Twelve Apostles, like uh, Nicodemus, and uh, Thomas, and, and, and so on, and Thomas, yes, of course, how can I forget Thomas? Um, I guess I was doubting. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Mark was apparently the John Mark that we learn about in the book of Acts, who started out with Paul and Barnabas on uh, their first missionary journey and uh, deserted halfway into it. Um, Luke was uh, Paul's beloved physician or doctor, but... Uh, the only way we know much of anything about him is that in the book of Acts, in the second half, he lapses into first-person plural language in various places, saying, we did this and we did that. Um, Matthew was one of the twelve apostles, but he was also a converted tax collector, so he, he didn't have a reputable job like a, a fisherman to come out of. These just don't seem to be the, the kind of people that uh, others were selecting when they knew that they had uh, an anonymous or even fabricated document and they wanted to try to pawn it off as legitimate. Um, it's only John who, as one of the inner three of Jesus' 12 disciples, um, fits that category. Um, and then we have to turn to, uh, to other arguments at that point. Um, but now let's just assume that um, the critics are right. And these were first century Christian writers whose names have been lost. Why would they choose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why not just write in their own names? And why these particular individuals... And the standard scholarly answer is because they were disciples of those men, or they had encountered them at some point, or they believed that they were writing in the spirit of what those individuals stood for. In other words, they're not just some uh, random 
Frenchman in the province of Gaul, uh, about as far away as you can get in the Roman Empire, uh, except for the south of Britain, uh, in uh, the first and second centuries from uh, Jerusalem. Even if the anonymous uh, uh, authorship theory turns out to be correct, we're still talking about first century writers who got their information from people who were eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and knew what he said and did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, another problem we have with Gospels is by even conservative dating, these things usually come about three to four decades after the events. John, even later, I mean, if you and I saw something today, we would want to write it down immediately. Why, why wait so long with the Gospels? Because we live in a print-based culture, mm-hmm. and the ancient people did not. The uh, majority uh, of uh, people in the ancient Roman Empire were illiterate. They did not have the ability to read and write. Uh, this didn't make them stupid. Um, it, uh, that's a sort of prejudice of modern people. Uh, they just lived in a different kind of culture, and so when something was important to them, Uh, They committed it to memory, and they rehearsed it, and they spoke it, and sometimes they put it to a a chant or music or rhythm, Um, and uh, they recited it in public and uh, um, with others who were like-minded, who could listen, and if they accidentally left something important out um, or made some kind of mistake, Uh, It was the responsibility uh, of the others uh, who knew the story to correct them. So um, we have uh, instances of uh, people having preserved accurate traditions in the ancient Near East and ancient Middle East for hundreds of years. Um, A 30 to 40 year period, as in the case of Jesus, is actually quite short by ancient standards. But then you also have to realize that, as we were talking about earlier, um, whether it was Q or whether it was something else or a whole bunch of something else's, um, it was very normal for uh, the key teachings and key activities of revered leaders, uh, the key events associated with uh, tightly knit communities, to be uh, committed to writing for uh, safekeeping uh, very shortly after uh, they had uh, transpired. But if those sources were subsequently combined to create a more uh, detailed document, then there wouldn't have been any reason to preserve the original. Uh, Going back to the conversation about Q, Uh, One of the least significant arguments against Q is we haven't found it. Um, You say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like a pretty convincing argument. Um, No, not when you realize that 95 plus percent of all the documents from the ancient Mediterranean world that we know of because somebody mentions them have been lost. Now, some of that is just due to the ravages of time, but in many cases, it refers 
to sources, shorter documents that historians and biographers used in compiling their sources. And those regularly were not preserved because the logic was if all that information has been preserved in a longer, fuller account, what's the point in keeping the shorter document um, in, in a world where uh, um, you didn't put something in writing to uh, have tons of people read it. You put something in writing to preserve the information and have key select leaders and literate people read it out loud in public to communities that valued the information. Well, if I've got everything I've got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's no reason to keep any of the sources. Even if that's so, I mean, is there still any reason to believe the Gospels? I mean, they could be close for times, they could have decent sources beyond, but that doesn't mean they're accurate. That's right. Um, and and so one has to work with the, the information that one has. Um, the most extensive uh, of which is the opening four verses of Luke 1 sometimes called Luke's prologue or preface, in which he lays out in, in a fair amount of detail exactly what he believed he was doing in the production of this work that we call the Gospel of Luke. And uh, if you were to set that side by side with the prefaces of some of the other most trusted and reliable historians and biographers of the ancient world, you would see a, a family resemblance. You would see that uh, they all refer to uh, sources that they used, but they also refer to careful historical investigation that they undertook themselves. They refer to interviewing eyewitnesses. They refer to uh, comparing and contrasting multiple accounts of uh, particular events. Uh, they talk about uh, putting things in a certain order, a certain arrangement for various purposes. Um, so if you're going to say that uh, the gospel writers uh, weren't reliable, that uh, as, as in fact uh, many critics would say today, um, they were aware that they were writing what was largely fictitious um, then you have to say they were also being very duplicitous um, because uh, the kinds of comments that are made uh, suggest that they believed they were doing, by the standards of their day, uh, top-notch historical work. Mm -hmm. And how about archaeology? <coughs> Has archaeology been a friend to the Gospels? Or a oh, my goodness. Um, I would say to everyone in our listening audience, um, without uh, mistreating your family, uh, abandoning giving to the church, if you're a Christian and other Christian causes, um, if you can, uh, with any ethical means imaginable, uh, take at least once in your lifetime a trip to Israel with a reputable tour guide um, and uh, someone who will take you uh, 
not just or entirely to the most popular places, though certainly you want to see them, uh, but to the most archaeologically authenticated sites, um, you can experience firsthand what others will have to uh, read books and search the internet to do, and that is to say um, there are volumes and volumes and volumes of archaeology, the vast majority of which readily corroborates the kinds of things, um, first with respect to the Gospels within Israel, but then with respect to Acts and the letters and the churches of Revelation, uh, the whole rest of the New Testament, if you go to uh, Turkey, Greece, and Rome, um, and uh, the types of things that can be tested, were these real people, were they real places, um, were the customs what actually happened, um, are they anachronistic, or do they fit the exact time period that they're assigned to? Um, over and over and over again, um, there is just a wealth of information to say, if the Gospels are hoaxes, they are, they are done by some of the most clever, intelligent, and duplicitous people in the history of the planet. And we don't make that claim about any other religious literature in the ancient world. Why on earth would anybody say that about Jesus in the New Testament unless they weren't doing genuine historical research, but simply had a bias against things ahead of time and in essence, we're saying, don't confuse me with the facts. I just want to make up my own theory and believe it in spite of the evidence. Yeah, I understand my in-laws are going to be sometime soon taking a trip to Israel or someone's friend of mine. I've already said, try and bring back a piece of archaeology for me. Okay, because I understand that's very doable, in fact. And I know Ali and I would love to get to go to Israel sometime. But if anyone's interested a bit more in archaeology in the New Testament, go back to my archives. Last year we interviewed Craig Evans with Jesus and the Remains of His Day. Probably one of the best books out there now in archaeology yes. in the New Testament. But let's move from there to the book of Acts. Now, we <clears throat> did interview, I think it was last year, the year before, Craig Keener on this. He's he's also written this tiny little thing on a book of Acts. <laughs> but, you know, if we were starting to talk about the Bible and archaeology, I mean, uh, would you be honest? I'd go with Acts first to demonstrate how archaeology has been a friend of the Bible. Right. Um, my goodness. Uh, if, if your listeners uh, uh, recognize your, your use of irony, uh, they'll know that you didn't really mean a, a small book. Uh, Craig Keener's uh, four volumes, uh, I think each one is over a thousand pages, um, uh, is by far and away the, the most ambitious uh, project of writing a commentary on any book of uh, of scripture, probably, uh, if not in all of history, if in all of human history, at least uh, 
since the days uh, in the Reformation when people just collected uh, countless sermons together in order to, to create huge volumes, but uh, they hardly uh, merited uh, um, the careful reading that Keener's material does. And, and his isn't the only uh, source. You don't have to wade through something uh, that huge. You can uh, go to works like uh, Colin Hemer's uh, The Book of Acts uh, in uh, uh, its setting in Hellenistic history, uh, which is a single mid-sized volume. Uh, but um, page after page in our Bibles, um, even down to details such as um, it was only Thessalonica that had civic leaders who were called politarchs. And the Greek word that the writer of Acts uses in Acts 17 to refer to these individuals uh, is the Greek politarchos. Um, most English translations don't use the word politarch because it wouldn't mean anything to anybody, but uh, they'll say magistrate or something like that. But uh, it's a term that unless you knew that this location, unlike any of the other cities uh, that Axe mentioned, had a unique form of government and a unique name for the civic authorities, uh, you wouldn't even know the word to use it, but uh, but Luke uses it. You go to Athens, down the coast, uh, in the south of Greece, and you have the, the better known term, the Areopagus, uh, or as that gets anglicized, Mars Hill. Uh, the Areopagus was the name of the city council in Athens. Uh, originally because it met on a small hill that was named after the uh, Greek god of war, Ares, or the Roman equivalent, Mars. Um, by Paul's day, it probably met in uh, a room uh, outside, uh, off the, the side of the central marketplace, uh, indoors, but it was still called the Areopagus. Um, and... Uh, that's the only place you find uh, that term being used. Then you go to the island of Malta, which most respectable Greek travelers had never been to. They were called barbarians. Um, they wouldn't have known anything about their uh, um, form of government. And uh, the head of the island, the tribal leader was simply called the chief man, kind of like we might call somebody a head honcho today. Um, and readers of Acts 27 sometimes smile when they get to the point where it talks about Paul interacting with the chief man. Um, sounds like some of the old Western black and white movies uh, before we... Uh, used Native Americans and talked about Indian chiefs uh, a bit prejudicially. So is it theoretically possible that somebody could have so researched the ancient empire to get every detail of local color right, but then 
created what today we would call a historical novel with fictitious characters. Yes, it's theoretically possible, but, and for me, this is the clinching argument, there are no zip, zero known examples of that kind of historical fiction in the ancient world. In fact, it really wasn't invented until about the 17th century in Europe. Uh, Oh, yes, you can point to the Iliad and the Odyssey that uh, do from time to time make reference to major places in ancient Greece and its environs that everybody would have known of. But it still includes countless locations that are completely fictitious. Um, There just isn't anything in the ancient world um, like what the skeptics want to turn the book of Acts into. It doesn't exist. Yeah, but there are scholars like Richard Purvo that say that it is a work of historical fiction of sorts. And doesn't their case have credibility? Well, Richard Purvo has written a uh, long and detailed commentary on the book of Acts, about a third the length of one of Keener's four volumes, <laughs> and uh, he has gathered together a wealth of Greco-Roman literature, particularly, less so on the Jewish side, so that as you look up a particular passage in his commentary, uh, you will see cross-references to individual details. If you're reading Acts 13, where uh, Paul on the island of Cyprus temporarily uh, blinds the uh, apparently Jewish background magician of sorts attending uh, Sergius Paulus on the island of Paphos um, and you want the simplest way to find uh, uh, other ancient stories many of them fictitious in which a person is blinded then Pervo is a great reference but that doesn't turn even that one episode into uh, a work of fiction, all it does is to say it's true in the history of the world. Um, There have been all kinds of people in all kinds of contexts who have suddenly become blind, some temporarily, some permanently, and in the history of the writing of fiction. There have been all kinds of stories of people who were permanently or temporarily blinded. The existence of that kind of a detail doesn't make the story historical, but it doesn't make it fictitious either. And if I go through every passage in Acts and say, I can find a couple of details in almost every story that have parallels in works of ancient fiction. That doesn't add up to anything any more than uh, I can go through uh, msn.com's list of headline stories 
uh, of what they've chosen to tell me about today's news. And I can find parallels, one or two of them, in virtually every one of those stories as well to what somebody has uh, written in some novel someplace. Um, you have to create a cumulative argument. You have to, to look at the context in which an entire work of literature is set, asking the questions of what we know about the author, his or her reasons for writing, the context in which they appear, um, and not just uh, a smattering of parallels uh, lifted willy-nilly from uh, various different passages. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it occurs to me that, you know, if we did have everything, we could say, something like, say, JFK never assassinated because, hey, Lincoln was shot in the back of the head and such. I mean, well, I think Lincoln was shot in the back of the head, so you're going to have to... Uh, go to uh, some episode of CSI, which I don't watch often enough to be able to give a, a convincing uh, analogy or some episode of Sherlock or something that is admittedly fictitious and say, do any of those ever have people shot in the back of the head? Yeah, they do. Um, you probably had it in house someplace just so you could get a good hospital uh, scene as well. Um, and, and the fact that somebody's shot in the back of the head doesn't make it true, and it doesn't make it false. Mm -hmm. Now, something else interesting about the Book of Acts is, I think it's around the 16th chapter, <clears throat> we start seeing the word, we, show up. Right. What's the significance of that? Well, that's what I mentioned ever so briefly earlier, where uh, if this is Luke, or whoever it is, um... They are writing as if, um, and we have no reason to doubt it, uh, they were uh, participating with the events that they are narrating at that point. Um, you don't find this language in the first half of Acts anywhere. Uh, you find it only in conjunction with the travels of Paul, and you don't find it consistently. You... We'll read third-person narrative uh, most of the time, and then without any uh, literary seam or introduction, uh, and then we went to such and such a place, and we did this, and we stayed there for a while, and uh, for a number of paragraphs, sometimes spanning more than one chapter, uh, the language will stay in the first person plural and then it'll disappear again. And all of a sudden it's back to they did this and Paul did this and, and there's no first person. The natural and straightforward interpretation of that in most documents is that the narrator is participating in those events, uh, but not in others. Um, now, someone can choose to uh, write an entire work of fiction and write himself or herself into the text as a character, uh, like uh, Herman Melville did in his uh, epic Moby Dick, uh, where the first three words of the book are, call me Ishmael, and uh, he narrates uh, the story from the point of view of the main character, 
in the first person, but he does it all the way through. Um, if somebody is doing this only part of the time, once again, either it's utter duplicity or um, it's because they are very honestly noting that they were not first-hand participants in everything they narrate. They had to learn the information from somebody else. But for these other stretches of time, they were first-hand participants and can narrate the story as, as they personally remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the ever great examples of this is in Acts 27 with the ship voyage. In fact, there have been, there's one book written about how Someone went through and said, this is a very accurate description of someone who had to be a first person, but was not familiar with nautical terminology and such. There's a very famous uh, 19th century book um, by a man named James Smith called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And... uh, you're absolutely right, without using any technical nautical terminology, a kind of which only uh, seasoned seafaring uh, shipmen would know, uh, completely accurately tells the account of what uh, first century uh, Mediterranean uh, seaworthy vessels did when giant storms hit and uh, it's not the type of thing that uh, would have been common information um, unless uh, you had had such an experience or had a close friend or relative who had undergone and lived to tell of such an ordeal and tell of it in in some detail. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned St. Paul there, so how about we move on to him and to his epistles and such. Now, something that's immediately asked about the epistles is the epistles don't really seem to say a whole lot about the historical Jesus. Why is that? Well, at the risk of sounding uh, a little bit trite um, or silly, Very early on, uh, Christians came to believe that the single most important thing about Jesus' life was his death. And so what you do find in the epistles, and certainly in Paul, um, are countless references uh, to Jesus' death, often specified as by crucifixion. And again, at the... uh, risk of making an overly obvious point, uh, people aren't crucified who didn't first live Mm -hmm. uh, under Roman jurisdiction in the uh, ancient Roman Empire. Uh, So uh, there are uh, references. There are a lot of allusions. There are only rare quotations of things that Jesus taught uh, during his earthly life. And um, if one doesn't know the contents of the Gospels in considerable detail, if, as is true of a significant segment of the Christian world, unfortunately, uh, 
They know Paul well, but not too much else well uh, out of the 66 books. Uh, you may not even be aware that you've just read an allusion to the teaching of Jesus when uh, Paul in Romans 12 and 13 is talking about uh, Christian responsibility to the state. And at the end of chapter 12, he talks about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. And you go, yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, hard stuff, but important to Paul. Well, yeah. Where did he get it from? Straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus said it first. Um, Christ is going to return like a thief in the night. Oh, yeah, I, I love eschatology. I love thinking about the end times. Uh, I know where to find that. That's First Thessalonians 5. You're absolutely right, but that's not where it was first uttered. comes straight out of Jesus' parables, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, uh, Matthew 24. Um, in fact, that's such a good example. Um, it's hard to imagine a Christian ever likening Christ's return to a thief because that's a negative image. If you're not already uh, indoctrinated into Christian teaching, uh, you're going to say, what? What's he coming to steal? No, that, that's not the point of the little analogy. The point is he's going to come at a time that surprises people. But it's it's been domesticated over 2,000 years of use. If you were a, a first century Greek reading Paul saying, day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, you go, excuse me? That's not an appropriate, pious thing to say about the arrival of God or, or the gods. Um, why would you say something like that? Well, Jesus said it. Oh, did he? Oh, well, then I guess it's okay. <laughs> um, and, and the list goes on. What about 1 Corinthians 7, uh, where Paul says uh, someone's divorced, not remarried. Um, let them stay single or, or get back together with their original spouse. Um, but now... I want to speak not as somebody with a word from the Lord, but I think as one who proves trustworthy. And he goes on to talk about uh, the unbelieving partner who abandons his spouse, which for the most part, Jews in Israel didn't do. That was a, a Greco-Roman issue. Um, Paul can't allude back to a teaching of Jesus uh, like he can in Mark 10 or Matthew 19 for the basic principle of marriage is for life. Um, so uh, he still believing that the spirit of the God of God is leading him uh, gives his own advice. Uh, that not so subtle distinction uh, can be traced right back to the fact that in one case, he knows what Jesus taught on the topic. In the other case, as far as he knows, Jesus never taught anything on the topic. And, and by the time you look at all of the examples of that, um, 
Of course, the most famous and longest one is the uh, couple paragraphs of teaching on the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, then you sort of have to rephrase your original question. Um, why didn't Paul refer to Jesus life all that often well maybe he did refer to it surprisingly often but if you think he should have done it even more well then you take that up with him um <laughs> but uh the main answer is the heart of the gospel focuses on his uh, atoning death Mark in mind, when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, I'm Nick Peters, your host. We've got Dr. Craig Blomberg here, group friend of ministry, talking about his book, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Matthew Bates here with us back again. He was here earlier, and he's got another book out, and it's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And we're going to be talking about that one. For now, let's get back to Dr. Blomberg and his book, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament. Okay, now, you said that you know, someone would be crucified, they had to have lived in Rome at the time. I know a lot of my listeners will encounter this. Uh, Richard Carrier has posited the theory based on the ascension of Isaiah that Jesus was crucified in outer space, as it were, never really existed, and whenever Paul talks about having received Anything or having a revelation and such that offices that supposedly the life of Jesus was given by revelations, which is what happened in First Corinthians eleven and First Corinthians fifteen. It, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would be surprised here. This really isn't a serious theory among scholarship, is it? No, it's not. Um, and in fact, if you uh, if you go to those uh, specific chapters. Um, Yes, it's true that uh, Jesus, as Paul understood things, uh, revealed himself uh, through a heavenly vision when Paul was on the Damascus Road, and uh, and he refers to that in 1 Corinthians 15, but only after he begins by saying... Um, I passed on to you what I received at the first, or can also be translated as of first importance, and it may well mean both of those. Um, that is language of, uh, as we know from both Greek and uh, Hebrew documents, of the careful transmission of oral tradition. Um, and from events that he was not a first-hand participant to, um, he learned, um, and he goes on to say that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he starts listing witnesses the first few by name. Then he speaks of the 12 apostles as a group. And then he says, uh, and more than 500 others, um, many of whom are still alive. He's writing 1 Corinthians in about 55, so about 25 years 
after Jesus' death in AD 30. Um, and uh, the implication is, you don't have to believe me. You want to go talk to these people? Um, talk to them. Uh, and then, actually setting himself off in a different category. He says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. A lot of uh, scholars, uh, this goes well beyond Richard Carrier, mm-hmm. would say, see, Paul is comparing his own experience to the stories narrated at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if his experience was a, a heavenly vision accompanied by a voice, which by his own admission, his companions heard, but couldn't discern clearly, couldn't pick up the words the way he understood them, then uh, that seems to be less than a, a fully objective uh, experience that uh, if uh, video cameras had been invented, you could have caught on tape. Quite the contrary. Paul is not saying these other people had something just like I had. He's saying I had something that was unique. I had something that was different. I wasn't um, a follower of Jesus. Uh, I wasn't uh, a biological family member of his. Um, Those are the only people we have any record of Jesus appearing to uh, during the 40 days of his resurrection appearances that Acts 1 describes. Um, Paul wasn't in the right place at the right time is what he's saying. And yet God gave him a special audience, a special appearance, um, in a way that was different, because by this time, the the body of Jesus had ascended to heaven and was, uh, at least metaphorically, at the right hand of the Father to an exalted position. Uh, So, uh, yeah, you can can, uh, look at at other examples. 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't even use the language of revelation. It only uses the language of tradition. I passed on to you. I delivered to you. Uh, That's the language of of oral tradition. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had eaten, he he broke it and gave thanks, dot, dot, dot. Um, There are things that that Paul learned by revelation. Galatians 1 says that he understood the heart of the gospel. And if you stop to think about it, um, if the person you were convinced was the arch opponent of your faith appears to you in a heavenly vision and you had a general understanding of what his supporters had been claiming just seeing that this man was, in fact, the risen Lord and God of the universe would have impacted all kinds of major things in your life. Um, how you are in right relationship with that person, 
who are God's people on this earth? Um, what does this mean for where we are in God's plan for the ages and, and basic questions like that? But having a heavenly vision of Jesus isn't going to tell you who the resurrection witnesses were, and it's not going to tell you what Jesus said uh, Thursday night before his death. That you're going to have to learn from life uh, living, uh, flesh and blood Christians who uh, can pass on the information accurately. Well, something else we can ask about the epistles is that for seven of them, maybe Romans, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, First um, Thessalonians, Philemon, such, and Philippians, we don't have any doubt that Paul wrote them. But the other six are in dispute. Is there ever really a good reason to believe Paul did write them? We have an unbroken tradition of uh, people making that claim, beginning with the letter writer himself, and uh, everything that was written about uh, the New Testament, beginning early in the second century. We have a certain homogeneity of style and theology within those seven letters. Um, we have uh, the fact that um, even if we didn't have a single one of Paul's letters and all we had was the book of Acts, we would recognize that after the 12 apostles and perhaps more so than most of the Twelve Apostles, the single most influential leader in the first generation of Christianity after the death and resurrection of Jesus was Paul of Tarsus, uh, originally known as Saul. Um, if you were merely to speculate, who would have been such a profound theologian who would have been so steeped in the Hebrew scriptures as the writer of these letters is? Who would have been able to describe within those letters the dramatic conversion experience that uh, he described? Who would have been able to travel so that he helped to found churches in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and travel so that eventually, uh, even though he didn't found the church there, he made it as far as Rome and had desires to go on from there to Spain. And there is no other figure in uh, early Christian history who is a close runner-up from the rest of Christian literature that we do have inside and outside of the Bible than Paul uh, to have written this. So um, what, would, what would be a good modern analogy? Um, is there uh, actual evidence that... Uh, 
the man who is a multiple MVP of the National Basketball Association, who uh, began his career with Cleveland, spent a long time in Miami, and then returned to Cleveland promising to bring his team an NBA championship, and he did it a year ago. Um, and we don't know yet if he'll pull it off a second time. Is there any good reason to believe that that man is named LeBron James? Um, is there any reason to doubt it? Good heavens, if you go through life taking information that is established by all the standard means and you start systematically doubting it all, um, you're going to wind up in a mental hospital. You can't function in life that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there are people like Bart Ehrman in his book Forged who do make place that forgery was something that really did happen in the ancient world. And we have stories of Someone later on writing a book like Third Corinthians, writing it in the style of Paul because they loved Paul so much, they admired him so much, they wanted to uh, continue his work and such. So, I mean, this kind of thing happened. So, isn't it, doesn't that give some credibility to the idea? Once you move beyond the seven undoubted letters of Paul, um, and I love your segues. You're not letting on to our listening audience that you've moved to the next chapter, but I know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> then, yes, uh, once, once you go to another collection of letters in the New Testament, uh, many of them historically attributed to Paul, you have to take account of what uh, even the careful reader of a fairly literal English translation will pick up, and certainly if you can read a little Greek, um, very different styles of writing. Uh, in several instances, uh, different vocabulary, uh, sometimes a different kind of subgenre of the form of letter or an epistle. And uh, yet at the same time, with um, enough similarities in each of those areas as well, that one can understand why the ancients, uh, in most instances, believed that uh, the New Testament writers whose names appear were the, the true writers, and one can understand why... Uh, a cross-section of some modern scholars have, have raised doubts about them. Um, one of the ironies of appealing to Bart Ehrman as uh, the representative scholar at this point is that he does not um, represent the more typical liberal or skeptical branch of biblical studies when he talks about forgeries. Um, I studied in the university years ago in a very liberal context, and uh, the same seven letters of Paul that 
basically undisputed, were undisputed then, the same six, Second uh, Thessalonians and uh, <coughs> Colossians, Ephesians, First Second Timothy and Titus uh, were doubted to varying degrees uh, by people back then as well. But no one, except for the occasional conservative protester, ever used the term forgery. Because the closest analogies we have in the ancient world to somebody writing in somebody else's name, and admittedly at times we don't have a lot of context, but where we have some, far more often than not, were not attempts to uh, mislead people, <coughs> but rather, um, in a world without footnotes and quotation marks and bibliographies, a way of saying these thoughts aren't really mine, um, at least not at heart. This is how I think Cicero or Sophocles or Rabbi Akiba or Paul would have addressed this situation if he were here and alive today. Whatever we may think of that, that's not what most people mean when they speak about forgeries. Um, Bart Ehrman and or his uh, publishers know how to sell books. Uh, the first book that uh, propelled him into the uh, limelight uh, was Misquoting Jesus, mm -hmm. which was all about New Testament textual criticism. In the first book like that to make the New York Times bestseller list. That's right. And it's not about misquoting Jesus at all. Mm -hmm. Um except in the very most indirect way in a few pages here and there. Um, so, yeah, if, if you want to get attention and sell books, um, you do what the Jesus Seminar did in the 90s, and you vote and cast little colored beads, and you create color-coded editions of the Gospels in four colors, depending on the likelihood you think Jesus said or did something. Uh, we can't get that sophisticated with the letters, but you can at least say, oh, some of them are forged. Um, that's, that's not what the standard liberal scholarly theory is claiming. Now, I'm not defending the standard theory, um, but should it turn out to be right, it, it probably wouldn't be any more worrisome than... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me, a person today who uh, picks up, uh, I'm going to risk making something up that will turn out to actually be true, um, but I am just making this up. Uh, my life and times as a glitzy girl, Madonna, as told to, <laughs> or open to the foreword, um, my ghostwriter was, 
or as in some cases, the ghostwriter's name doesn't even appear, but uh, it looks like it was Madonna writing it, and that could be viewed as duplicitous, but even then, we sort of go, yeah, that's what Hollywood celebrities do. I didn't think she was that literate. Um, I'm getting in trouble more and more with each part of this example I give. Not with me. Um, but but we say, yeah, that's just sort of the convention of the day. Um, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be elevated to the same level as if uh, a book appeared that was uh, the secret life and times of Nick Peters. And uh, when people looked at it, they said, oh, my goodness, this is just uh, taken straight out of uh, the archives of Richard Nixon. Um now we've got a moral problem. Yeah, I, I want to assure people I am not a crook. <laughs> well done. Wait, wait, and wait, I'm sh- guessing you aren't alive to hear him say that the first time around. Nope, I was born in 1980. Now, although it's a bit ironic, but I just get done saying I'm not a crook because now becomes the time of a show where I tell you how you can donate to Deeper Waters Ministries. <laughs> so <laughs> be assured I am not a crook. Now, That's excellent. If you want to make a donation, just go to uh, deeperwatersprojects.com. That's our website. There's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that, and it takes you to Risen Jesus. You go in the right place. My in-laws run that, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation. Then you get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and just let us know. Say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure that we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. And if you can become a regular monthly donor, that's even better. We could really use your support for that. You can also go buy some ebooks that we've written or uh, I've, I've written or co-written. One I've written is a creed for the ages about the Apostles' Creed and today's Christian. And ones I've co-written include um, God and Natural Disasters and... Christian Answers, Rich Generation's Questions, and Defining Inerrancy, which before written by Dr. Blomberg here as well. And finally, guys, I'm not sure how much you might have noticed this, but we're usually trying to please the ladies in our lives, including moms with Mother's Day coming up. And women like jewelry, usually. Yeah, if that might be news to you. If it is, you probably don't have a lady in your life right now. But women do like jewelry. If you want to get something special for that lady in your life, then you can go to our jewelry store for Premier Jewelry. Just get in touch with me. I'll tell you how detail, all the details if you need help. And let me know if you make a purchase. If you do, 25% of what you buy goes to Deeper Waters. And as I say, guys, if we're talking about the wife that you have in your life and you want to make her happy, get her some jewelry. And you can buy it to make up for that screw-up that you recently did. Or you can buy it to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the near future. Now, Dr. Blomberg, do you have an organization you'd like people to donate to? 
Um, I have lots of organizations, but as uh, an employee of Denver Seminary, and although we uh, have uh, a considerable amount of our uh, annual budget is driven by tuition, we would have uh, exorbitantly high uh, fees that no one could afford if we weren't also uh, sponsored by uh, generous donors. So if uh, people are interested in Denver Seminary and uh, preparing men and women for a broad range of Christian ministries, I'd be thrilled if they included us in uh, their giving as well. And where do I go if I want to make that donation? Um, you can go straight to uh, www.denverseminary.edu and uh, follow the instructions for uh, Giving, donating. Now let's move on through the book. I'd like to skip more towards the end to get into some other topics. And one of them is the canonization, because we got so right. many books like a, the books found at Nag Hammadi, the Gnostic Gospels and such. And, and then we can ask, well, geez, why weren't these books included in the canon? Of course, usually if you're online, you're here. Where? Constantine decided he didn't want them in the canon. So, um, what do you... What, what, is there any truth to this here? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is an interesting phenomenon in uh, an internet world, although it could have happened even without the internet. It would have been harder. In about the year 2003, a uh, blockbuster novel that was entirely fictitious um, by a man named Dan Brown called The Da Vinci Code uh, made up all kinds of fanciful things about uh, the Council of Nicaea gathering of bishops and leading church leaders in the 320s, in the 4th century after Christ. Um, and Dan Brown, in as part of his storyline of characters who were trying to go back and find a living descendant and trace a bloodline back to Jesus of Nazareth, um, he made up all kinds of things uh, about Constantine, including the claim that at the Council of Nicaea, they were uh, debating what books should go into the New Testament canon, and that Constantine's role was a, a fairly heavy-handed one. <coughs> this, uh, this view uh, is just made up. Um, you don't find it in, in previous documents. Um, you don't find it in genuine church history. Council of Nicaea is all about establishing uh, Orthodox Christian convictions about uh, the Trinity, about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if listeners have had any experience in uh, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian churches, even the occasional Baptist, Methodist, um, 
they will probably have recited, maybe even sung the Nicene Creed, which is a, a three-part uh, statement that begins, I believe, in God the Father Almighty, uh, and that has its longest section about, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and uh, this is what Council of Nicaea was about. Um, Constantine uh, had nothing to do with the formation of the canon. I actually think that Thomas Paine might have originally said the same thing a couple of centuries ago about Constantine. I, I, I will have to say that, that Dan Brown really wasn't creative enough to uh, pick up all of his fiction firsthand. He undoubtedly uh, did get some of it from others who made things up at, at an earlier date. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the Gnostic Gospel, something I've told people a lot of times is, look, if you want to know why the Gnostic Gospels aren't treated as real historical sources and why banana can and such, just go read them sometime, and you'll probably figure out pretty quickly why they're not in there. <laughs> Although, mm-hmm. uh, there was a small group of uh, scholars and church leaders just a few years ago that uh, appointed themselves uh, to be a council, and they met in New Orleans, and they designated themselves the New Orleans Council uh, under the leadership of a man by the name of Hal Tausig, and I think it was with Houghton and Mifflin, published uh, what was called a New New Testament which contained uh, all 27 books of the historic canonical New Testament, along with 10 more. And they rearranged them uh, to group them uh, according to different topics. And uh, there are, in very liberal, particularly Protestant circles, um, enough points of contact um, with the Gnostic texts that resonate with desires of fully modern and postmodern people, that they do have some attraction to folks, particularly the idea that we find truth inside of ourselves, that the divine is a, a spark that resides in every human being waiting to be fanned into flame, that uh, our task is to know ourselves, to look to ourselves as uh, the fount of truth, um, no external authorities. There are some texts, um, especially... Uh, if you take them out of context, that seem to be very, shall we say, proto-feminist, um, egalitarian in ways that uh, much of early Christianity doesn't appear to have been. Um, however, you have to uh, ignore um, other texts that are more chauvinist than anything that ever made it into the canon. Um, but uh, 
it, it may be strange to the average evangelical listener, but there there is a, a segment of uh, church-going people in our country today, uh, many of them baby boomers, who grew up um, in a more repressive kind of church context, where authority was wielded in a heavy-handed way. And of course, you can still find such things. Um, and so uh, most people, I think Nick would, would agree, just, mm-hmm. just read them. Yeah. But there are, there are some that would go, oh, yeah, we ought to add a few of these books. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to move on because there's still more covering. I make sure everyone knows every single topic we're talking about, we're just getting a picture and a paragraph. Curves. Like I said, there's about 800 pages in this book, so there's a whole lot more. Right. There. Now, what about the text of the New Testament? We just talked about uh, Bartermans misquoting Jesus. And yeah. let's face it, everyone knows there are hundreds of thousands of variants in the New Testament. I mean, even conservative scholars agree with this, and, you know, the Bible's been translated from a translation, from a translation, from a translation, so how can we be sure we've got the good text today? <laughs> I, I love to pose that very question to uh, classes of, of first-year seminary students, because... Uh, it, it, it's really a, an excellent way to find out if somebody has ever learned to think analytically or to think carefully. Um, the way you phrased it, which is exactly how Ehrman phrases it, at first blush, sounds like, well, my goodness, uh, these people that follow the Bible must be idiots. Uh, or as Richard Dawkins says, delusional. But suppose you were told that about some other document that you don't even know what topic it's about. Hopefully, you would want to ask some questions like, okay, if there are X thousand variants, how many documents are they distributed among? Well, Ehrman at least is honest enough to, to give us the raw data, and he's talking not just about Greek texts, but texts translated into other ancient languages in the centuries before the printing press came to be, and to use his own number, he's talking about 25,000 manuscripts divided into his highest number, he says some people say 200, some 300, some 400,000. If you take his highest number, 400,000, divide that by 25,000, you're saying there are 16 unique textual variants per manuscript. That sounds a lot different than saying 400,000. There might only be eight on average if the 200,000 figure is right. But still, that's a lot. So what's the next question you have to ask? What kind of variants are they? Are we talking about this Bible's missing a whole book? Missing a whole chapter? Add stuff gratuitously? 
No, we're talking about the vast majority of those two to 400,000 variants are variant spellings of words. The most common of which is based on a feature of the Greek language that a lot of words might or might not have the letter N, the Greek letter new, on the end of the word, and grammarians call it a movable new. Has no impact on the meaning of the text whatsoever. By the time you focus on those that do, you're down to about 10,000 variants. That's a far cry from 400, but that's still a lot. So what's left? Well, the vast majority of those 10,000, probably 8,500 or so of them, involve the presence or absence of a single word, often and, or the, or a, or word order that doesn't affect the meaning, or uh, the presence or absence of a small word that ever so slightly affects the meaning, but there's only a handful of manuscripts that have it or lack it, and so it's obvious to everyone what the original reading was. And by the time you eliminate those, if you go to the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament and look at the footnotes they deem worthy of students studying New Testament Greek being aware of, you're down to about 1,400. Okay, well, 1,400 is still kind of interesting. But then you have to ask out of those 1,400 that do, with rare exceptions, involve several words in a particular verse, uh, how many of them are we still very uncertain as to what the original actually was? Not many at all. Uh, the uh, committees use uh, the letters A, B, C, and D for uh, their level of confidence that they've chosen the right textual variant. And for the last three editions of the five editions of the UBS Greek New Testament, there are very, very rare uses of the letter D. The highest number, the plurality, if not a majority, those 1,400 variants have a, an a level of confidence, the age and reliability of the manuscripts make it very clear what the original was. So, what's worth somebody who can't study a Greek New Testament knowing about? Get an NIV, get an ESV, get a New American Standard, get an NRSV, get any of the standard modern English translations and read your footnotes. Every time it says some manuscripts have and gives an alternate reading. Those are the only ones you need to be concerned that, that there's something worth paying attention to. And you can see for yourself what the issues are that are at stake. I love the way Dan Wallace at Dallas Seminary puts it. Um, for the New Testament, and he does so uh, deliberately to, to shock and provoke. 
shock and awe, maybe we should say. He'll hold up his English New Testament and he'll say, we have a translation here of the actual original manuscripts. And of course, people know who he is. They're, they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. But then he'll say, the only thing we're not sure of is whether it's in the text or in the footnotes. <laughs> and then, That's a far cry from misquoting Jesus. And, of course, we could mention as well as if we are going to go and compare documents, whereas Bruce Metzger has said, <clears throat> when it comes to documents of the New Testament, we have an embarrassment of riches in that promise. Right. We have too many manuscripts compare. That's right. Um, we were just talking about the Gnostic texts. The vast majority of Gnostic texts found at Nag Hammadi in the late 1940s exist in exactly one copy. That is not adequate for us to have any confidence. We know what they first wrote. The Gospel of Thomas, which is by far the best known of these texts and the only one that has some sayings of Jesus that sound reasonably like the Jesus of the New Testament, though not always, um, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Greek texts of the Gospel of Thomas. We have three <laughs> wow. Now, now, one other big problem that we have with the New Testament, though, is because, you know, the New Testament has these darn things in it, and I, I think most people would have no problem with the New Testament if it wasn't for this. These things in it called miracles right, just <laughs> obviously get in the way of it being a true historical account. Because by God, we know miracles don't happen. Do we now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, science has proven it. So, what happens when somebody experiences one? Yeah, we <laughs> all know it's either a delusion or a hallucination or something's not mm. being understood. <laughs> there are all kinds of ways of, of coming at the issue of miracles. And... Uh, I think it's to Craig Keener's credit, not in his giant four volumes on Acts, but in two medium-sized volumes on miracles, published in 2011, uh, to have compiled, I think, well over 500 accounts of the most documented, certified, personally, publicly witnessed events that parallel the kinds of events that are called miracles in the New Testament. And uh, they have taken place on every continent, including North America. They cut across socioeconomic bracket. They cut across levels of education. I once heard a... Uh, 
man who at the time was teaching uh, religion at the University of Minnesota where I was uh, participating in a debate and talking about the numbers of modern-day miracles, and, and his comment was, uh, yeah, until they get some education, and, they, and then they learn to describe them differently. And uh, I, I didn't have the heart, uh, though I probably should have, to say um, only if they get a certain kind of education that indoctrinates them to describe them in in ways that they wouldn't have naturally described them as. But if I am present, as I have been, with a group of Christian leaders, elders of a local church, with an individual who has the MRIs, we've looked at the pictures, a serious large abdominal tumor, and she has called us, in obedience to James 5, the elders of the church, to anoint her with oil and pray over her. And we do not use any name it and claim it approach. We make it very clear that it is entirely up to God if he wants to heal. But we are going to fervently implore uh, God of the universe for healing. And we do so. A number of people pray and we lay hands on her. And uh, she that's on a Sunday morning. And on Monday, she has her next checkup at the doctor. And they find no evidence of any tumor, despite the fact that she has had the symptoms for weeks that correspond to that tumor. And what's more, the tumor never returns. And this was 20 years ago. And this person is still alive and healthy and functioning and serving the Lord in the Denver metro area. How does an intelligent person how does an educated person explain this? Well, it was chance. If you, if you pray over enough people, sooner or later, there, there's no question, there is spontaneous healing that occasionally happens that doctors can't account for if you pray enough over enough people by sheer coincidence it's going to happen once i agree if that's if, if that's all that's going on but then what happens when somebody undertakes a study and they find that extrapolating from the the data that has been amassed a, a pew foundation study longitudinal study over 10, 15 years, that the likelihood is that there probably are today over a million people alive in our world who have experienced the identical phenomenon. Well, you say that's one million out of seven billion. 
That's one out of every 7,000. Okay? But that's just one kind of miracle. Let's add people who have heard audible voices directing them to do something that turned out to be life or health saving that they were not planning on doing until they heard the voice. And I've heard the people who have quoted Richard Dawkins and said to me, well, today when people hear voices, we call them delusional. Why should we believe all these biblical stories of people hearing voices? And if we had the time, I could tell you stories of completely rational, non-delusional people who have never heard voices in their life hearing them on one occasion with guidance and information they could not possibly have surmised on their own that turned out to be life or health saving because they were Christians, they assumed it was God speaking to them. What about if I throw in exorcisms? You say, well, there's something that's limited to Africa. Hardly. My church is 17 years old, and in its 17 years, we have seen on three separate occasions, about once every five years, someone have demons cast out of them. Exactly as you find in the Bible, where previously there was no history of mental illness, and subsequently, there is no diagnosis of any mental or emotional problems. And the list goes on. And pretty soon, there are just too many of these for a rational, educated person to write them all off. At some point, we have to ask, who is really the delusional person? Mm-hmm. The one who refuses, in spite of all the evidence, to say that there just might be a God who on occasion for his sovereign purposes, but in the long run, always for the good of somebody, intervenes in ways he normally doesn't. And that's what throughout the history of human language people have called a miracle. Mm-hmm. We've only got a few minutes left, about five minutes left for content discussion, so I can think we have to do this in about five minutes or so, but what would you say to someone who's skeptical of a grand miracle in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus? Read Craig Keener. There have been other resurrections. The difference is those people have died again. Um, But uh, short answer If you have adequate witnesses who are sane, uh, who are not uh, all being deceived by some kind of optical illusion because these sightings happen independently at different places, different times, under different conditions, with nobody expecting them to occur at the time they're happening, um, 
different people involved. Uh, and the end result is the birth of a religion that over the next 2,000 years commands more allegiance than any other religion in world history and is disproportionately responsible for the birth and rise of humanitarian relief, law, medicine, modern science, education, concern for the poor and outcast. Maybe that was an actual resurrection that got it all going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone also about that. Craig Keener has been on the show before talking about his book, Miracles, that was back in 2013. And we've had Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona both on, on a number of occasions, in fact, to talk about the resurrection. And both of their works would be highly recommended in for someone who's wanting to have answers to your questions about the resurrection of Jesus. But you know, um, playing devil's advocate for a moment, that, that wasn't an objective recommendation because you're related to Mike Lacona, so therefore your testimony is of no value at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, anyone interested? No, it's of great value. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. Don't <laughs> let our audience misunderstand me, but that's the kind of argument people raise about the gospel writers. Well, they couldn't have told the story accurately. They were biased. They supported the movement. Gee, did you ever think that maybe because it was because there was good evidence, that's why they joined the movement? And Mike would be one of the first ones to tell people that if I disagree with him on something, even though everyone else is saying one thing, if I think he's wrong on it, I'm going to say, yeah, I don't think you're right on this one. If anyone wants to know, just ask him. Father-in-law and son-in-law do not always agree entirely <laughs> on these issues. I've heard you do it. I know it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we could just go ahead and just start wrapping things up here. If uh, anyone is interested in the book, the book is The Historical Reliability of the New Testament, and it is available on Amazon. Right now, I'm pulling up the price here. The Kindle version, if you want to go that way, which is usually less expensive than such, is $9.99. And I'm having some jumping it, but I believe the paperback version at this point is Twenty-three forty-nine on Amazon. If not, it's around there. Yeah, uh, Dr. Blomberg, do you have a uh, blog, website, email, way people can get in touch if they want to find out more? I don't have a personal website, but uh, all of us at the seminary faculty are very reachable um, by first name dot last name uh, at denverseminary.edu. If somebody wanted to Email me with a question, craig.blomberg at denverseminary.edu. And if they're interested in, in very short little bios, uh, our travel schedules, speaking schedules, uh, that's available under the uh, faculty link on uh, the denverseminary.edu website. And uh, they can be in touch. Okay, I, I dig up a page come now. It's actually twenty five for nine, but on Amazon it also has free shipping. If you all want to get like pretty much your PhD in the library of the New Testament, this <laughs> is the book to get right now. And you're, and oh wait, the Laertes are coming up. I understand that from back book it looks like your next plan is a systematic theology of the New Testament, isn't it? 
Um, well, it will be a biblical theology. Um, it will not be systematic. But okay. I am working on a New Testament theology. That's right. Ah, well, hopefully we'll see you back here for that one. It would be my delight. Do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Sure. Um, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. That's uh, obviously at a a 40,000-foot level. Uh, Solomon didn't know about quantum physics. But uh, there are very, very few significant skeptical questions about the Christian faith and the Christian scriptures that have only been invented uh, in recent decades. Most of the issues have been around uh, in the history of the church. It's true that during the heyday of medieval Catholicism, a lot of questioning was suppressed, but certainly from the Protestant Reformation, the times of Martin Luther in the early 1500s, for uh, 500 plus years now, 500 years this year, if you uh, uh, count the Reformation starting from the Wittenberg door and the nailing of the 95 Theses, people have been aware of these issues. Even the Gnostic texts, people were aware of them. We just didn't have copies of as many of them as we've now been able to recover. Um, Do not let sensationalizing writers or bloggers trying to get a lot of attention make it sound like there's some new discovery that calls into question the Christian scriptures in a way that's never happened before. They're just making it up. And if you're not convinced by the answers that people have given, fair enough. But don't write it off without taking the time to discover what those answers are that have been given and, and considering them fairly. In my opinion, they're very good answers on a very regular basis. Well, Dr. Baumberg, it's been great to have you here again. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much. I can remind everyone that next week we're going to have Matthew Bates coming back on again talking about his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>